Well, every week when we get together, we talk a lot about what God is like. Um, but, but a question that we need to ask is, how do we know what he's like? And on the one hand, we can know some things about what God is like by looking at what he's made. Because you can always know something about an artist by looking at their art. Um, if you stand in a, in a great cathedral, you know something about the person who designed it. You know that, obviously, there is a person who designed it. Uh, you know that they're brilliant mathematicians. You know that they have an eye for color. You know um, that they're, they're good at managing acoustics. You know some important things about them. But ultimately, there's a lot of their story you don't know. Uh, you don't know everything about their personality, their relationships. You can't deduce everything about them from, from the things that they've made. And when we look at creation, the scripture does tell us that it tells us a lot about God. Uh, Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 say, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So when we look at creation, we know for sure that there is a God. You, you would almost have to suppress what's, what's obvious to assume that there was no creator behind it at all. We also know something about what that God is like. We know about his love for grandeur, his love for beauty, um, that, that he's a God who cares about things and sight and sound and smells. But we also get a limited view of God from creation. And there's a lot that can kind of be open to interpretation because the creation contains amazing things like sunsets that can tell us one thing about God, but at the same time, the, the creation contains things like tornadoes and hornets. And so the picture we put together of God just looking at creation can sometimes be difficult to come up with and can be contradictory. You know, the creation includes things like the Alps to tell us about God, but creation also includes Avon. So what, do we, what, what is the picture of God that we, we deduce from all of that? And so while we can know that there is a creator by looking at the creation, there's an awful lot that we can't know just by looking at creation. There's an awful lot that we could get wrong. So what we're supposed to do is look at the creation and see the, the obvious evidence that there is a creator there, and we're supposed to go searching for him. But, but left to ourselves, this would be totally futile, because how do you find God? He's the creator. He's not part of the creation. So it's not just like with a long enough pilgrimage we could eventually get to him, or with a strong enough telescope we could eventually see him. He would have to make himself known. And at the heart of Christian belief is the idea that God has made himself known. That he's a God of self-revelation. He reveals himself. And we believe that he revealed himself most clearly and most truly in his son. Uh, when Jesus came and lived among us, we, we saw exactly what God was like. But then in a number of other times, in a number of other ways, God has revealed himself to his people. And that revelation of God has been recorded for us in a book, the Bible. So in the Bible, we have this record of God's revealing himself. But, but more than that, the Bible itself is God's revelation to us. And Jesus talked about it like every word was put there by God. The whole thing was given to us so that God could be revealed, that God actually showed up, God actually spoke, he actually told us what he's like, that he's a self-revealing God, and the only hope we have of finding him is that he spoke, and the good news is that he did speak. So there is hope. We can know him. We don't have to guess about everything. And this is important because on one level, all of us desire a relationship with God. Deep down, this is, is something that we all need. In fact, the longing underneath all of our other longings is a longing for him. You know, sometimes we think, I don't want a relationship with God, but the one thing I want is to be rich. 
Because then if I was rich, then I would have security. I would have peace. I would have enough for the future. But then if we acquire some wealth, we get some things, we realize that it's never enough. It never secures us. And that just reveals that there's a deeper longing underneath that. There's a longing for something more. There's a longing for infinite security, infinite peace, an infinitely good future. And that can only be found by knowing God. So whether we'll acknowledge it or not, deep down, we do have a longing for him. We also have a longing for relationship, and sometimes we think that that can be satisfied just by meeting the one, just by meeting that other person, that I want to meet that one person who will know me fully, but also love me and accept me. And we go looking for that person, and we find someone and sometimes marry that someone, but then we realize that there is no person that can fully complete us. And when people get to know us better, there's less that's lovable about us. But why do we all have that longing? Why do we have that longing for someone who would know us fully and then accept us completely? Because God does that. God can know us completely all the way to the bottom and know our sins. And because of what Jesus did for us on the cross by paying for those sins, he can still love us and accept us completely. What we all really want deep down is a relationship with God. And the good news that God gives us in the scripture is, is this generous offer. In Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So there's not a single person in history who has sought for God with all of their heart and not found him. He makes himself known to those who seek him. And then Jesus makes this unbelievable promise. This is in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So this means that if you have a desire to come to Christ, then God is already working on your heart to draw you to him. And when you come to him, he'll never reject you. You can have that relationship with God that that you're after. That thing that your heart wants, that thing that you crave on the deepest level can be yours. You can know him in Christ, which is a huge encouragement that God is gracious enough to make himself known to us. He's gracious enough to give us that offer to say that if you truly seek me, you can can have me. He he says that if we come to him, he will never cast us out. Um, The fact that he revealed all of that is incredibly good news. But here's our problem. We, we want that relationship with God, but then in our rebellion against him, we also want to be God. We want to rule our own lives. That, that thing that we want, on one level, is kind of repulsive to us because it would mean giving up control. It would mean acknowledging that there's another Lord over my life that isn't me. It would, acknowledge, it would mean acknowledging that we are not God. And that's a, a tough pill to swallow. As people, we kind of want to have our cake and eat it too. We want that deep and infinite relationship that can satisfy, but then at the exact same time, we don't want to give up control. We don't want to yield. We want God, but we're also in rebellion against him. And so here's what we often do, is we invent a God that would fit for us. We, we change our definition of what God is like. We kind of make God in our own image so that God can be someone who is palatable for us, that we don't need to yield control to, but that we can still kind of convince ourselves, but look, now I've got a relationship with him. And we start to tell ourselves that God can be whoever I want him to be. But if God is real, that can't be the way it works. Because no relationship with any real person works that way. I mean, imagine you were to go on a date with someone, and, and, and here she is, she's telling you her story, and she says, you know, I grew up in Georgia, and you say, 
no, I really think you're more of a San Francisco girl. She said, no, like, I'm, I'm telling you about me. Like, you, you can't invent this. And, and then she says, I love the outdoors. And you say, no, I think your favorite place is the mall. And, and then she says, I'm five foot two. And you say, I think you're a lot taller than that. Like, eventually she would say, um, you don't actually want a relationship with me. You want a relationship with someone other than me. You're trying to invent somebody else to have this relationship with. We would never do that with a real person because we know to, to come into a relationship with a real person would mean that they're going to be someone independent of us and we have things to learn about them. But we do that with God all the time. When we read the scriptures where God says things like, I'm holy and punish sins, and we say, I could never believe in a God like that. But we don't get to invent him. Or God says, I love even the most sinful among you. And we say, I can't believe in a God who'd be willing to accept people like that. Or God says, I save people by grace through faith and not by the works we do. And you say, well, I could never believe in a God who wouldn't let us earn that. Or God gives commands and, and he says, I joined you with your spouse in marriage. And we say, well, I don't want a God who says that in my situation. Or God says, my word is authoritative over your life. And we say, I don't believe in a God who would ever contradict my heart or who would contradict my group of friends or who would contradict the warm and fuzzy internet meme that said I'm supposed to follow my heart. But what we're doing there is we're creating God in our image. We're saying, I'm seeking God in my own way. But in reality, we're trying to invent a God that, that fits. And it'll never work. It'll never be satisfying because even if we say, I have a relationship with that God now, we'll feel like we were lying the whole time. We, we made a God up to have a relationship with because deep down we have this craving in our heart for a relationship with God, but also we have this inner rebellion against him. We don't want the real thing. But if God is real, then to truly know God is to know someone who is altogether other than us who isn't always what we want him to be, who doesn't always say what we want him to say, who's not just a powerful version of me on my best day, but someone who speaks in a way that sometimes contradicts me. At times, he's more severe than I am. At times, he's more gracious than I am. He, he says things that at times, I, I just love the things that he says, but then other things he says, I reject. I, I, I naturally reject when I first hear it. It's just not palatable. But if he's really God and he's not just a fairy tale, if he's not someone I can invent, then there's no way he could always be what we want. There's no way his commands would always be what we would choose all the time. We should be surprised and at, at times up front, even a little repulsed by God, if he's not a God that we made. And our job in, in seeking him is to see the places where he's revealed himself and then to change our view of God accordingly to allow him to speak and tell us what he's like and to believe him, to allow him to command and to trust that his commands are good. But sometimes that first encounter with God just doesn't go the way we want it to. And in fact, in Exodus 19, this whole scene at the foot of Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given looks like this. In Exodus 19, verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So God showed up, and he was not our designer God. He showed up, and he was frightening. And this is obviously a very different God than our culture presents us with. You know, our culture says, well, yeah, it's okay to believe in a God as long as that God is something like a, a benevolent, jolly Santa Claus figure. Um, but, but the second that he becomes at all frightening or threatening, we say, no, that, that just can't possibly be who God is. And so Moses goes up on this mountain. God gives him his Ten Commandments. He gives him his Ten Words to tell the people what's required of them. And his words are true and right and just, and they just resonate as true, and they form the foundation of so many great societies over time. But when Moses comes down and tells the people those words, they're even more afraid. Because not only do they see this terrifying God there, not only do they feel the trembling and the quaking, but now this God is speaking and saying what he requires— And who could say they obeyed those Ten Commandments? Now, if these people at the foot of the mountain were modern Americans, they might have sent in some suggestions. You know, they they might send an email and say, Moses, I'd prefer God who's a little bit more warm and cuddly than this. Um, You know, all these requirements he's giving, they seem pretty rigid and inflexible. I'd kind of like to modify those a little bit. Or maybe just they'd send the email that says, I can't really believe in a God of thunder and fire and lightning. Uh, That God kind of triggers me. I'm going to have to find a different church. But God is not someone we get to invent or modify. He is who he is, completely independent of us, completely independent of our desires, our whims, and our preferences. And so these people, seeing that and knowing that God is a reality, not just someone they've made up, they respond appropriately. Exodus 20, verse 18 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So they're saying, we thought we wanted a relationship with God, but then we found out what God is like. And yeah, we, we still want that relationship, but we need a buffer. We, we need a mediator. Moses, you go up, you talk to God, you'll be fine. Um, then you come back down and tell us what he says when you are up there. Don't tell us that we have to get too close to God ourselves. So they have this sense that if they get too close to a God that's that holy and that powerful, that they'll die. And so over and over in this narrative, Moses goes up the mountain and talks to God for the people, and then he comes down the mountain with God's word, and seven times he climbs up the 2,300 feet and then climbs down. There's an 80-year-old guy going back and forth, being this buffer, being this messenger between God and these people, being this mediator. And while this God who showed up on Mount Sinai is not a God we would invent— He's not a God who's easily palatable in our culture. He is the God of both the Old and New Testaments. And when he shows up in Scripture again and again and again, the response of people to God showing up is fear, and God actually commands us to fear the Lord. And again, this is Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon has gone out and explored all the world to see where there's meaning, to see where life is worth living. He tries everything the world has to offer. And his conclusion in Exodus 12, 13 is, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
In Psalm 103, verse 11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Psalm 89, 6 and 7 says, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? And throughout Scripture, it holds out as a a mark of, of wicked people is that they don't fear the Lord. Psalm 36, 1 says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now we hear that and we say, well, that's just Old Testament, right? Like, then Jesus came and, and everything changed. A lot changed when Jesus came, but God didn't change when Jesus came. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says this, Since we have these promises, and again, this is New Testament, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And then we go to the book of Revelation, the, the newest of the New Testament books, and it says in chapter 14, verse 7, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. So God isn't a God that we can take lightly. He is a God who calls us to fear him. And I know that our culture's reaction to that is they say, that's your God? Like a God of fire and smoke and thunder and lightning? You will never be happy if that's your God. You'll never be well if you believe God is like that. If you worship a God like that, you'll just never be sound. So make God different. But God is who he is. Regardless of what we think he should be and regardless of whether we think, uh, what we think the results of believing in him will be. Whether we think that God will be attractive to the community, whether we think that God will sell the church to people, there's a holiness and power in God that is to be feared. And sometimes we water down the idea of fear and say, well, that just means stand in awe. It just means that God is awesome. And in our vernacular, awesome just kind of means cool and amazing. So we think, no, as long as we think God's cool and amazing, then we're fearing him. But these people at the foot of Mount Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai weren't saying God's cool and amazing. It was well beyond that. They were trembling. Or we'll say, well, fear just means respect. But I've got a lot of people that I respect in my life, and I don't want a buffer between me and them. I actually want more time with them. But when these people saw God, there there was fear and trembling, and they said, Moses, you go up and talk to him. We can't even get close. So it seems like their fear looked an awful lot like fear. So we can't change the reality of who God is or what he's like. But the good news is that we don't need to. Because look what Moses says next. This is Exodus 20, verse 20. It says, Moses said to the people, and catch this, he says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So Moses says, do not fear, God has come to give you fear. Don't fear, God's here to make you fear. And so you might read this and you say, see, here goes the Bible again, like contradicting itself like it always does. But here's the thing, these people who wrote the Bible were not idiots. Um, Moses, nobody would say, was an idiot. Like this is the guy who wrote the laws that great societies have been based on. He was by all accounts a genius. And so there's no way that he would be contradicting himself in the same sentence. He's actually trying to teach us something here. He's saying that there is a kind of fear that's right, and there's a kind of fear that's wrong. 
There's a kind of fear of the Lord that is to be cultivated, but then there's a kind of fear to get rid of. And now I know that we don't typically talk about any fears being right. Um, we, we tend to treat all fears like they're conditions that we need to overcome. And, I mean, we've seen the lists of phobias, you know, lists like acrophobia, the fear of heights, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, arachnophobia phobia, the fear of lame 90s movies, and... <laughs> Most of you have gelatophobia, the fear of laughter. Um, but it's, we've got all, this list of fears, and we kind of laugh at them. They're kind of jokes. Some are rare. Um, paganophobia is the fear of beards. So you would struggle at Grace Road. This would be a terrifying place for you. We, and in our minds, fears are silly. Fears are bad. Fears are all to be overcome. But Moses says there are fears to get rid of, but there's a fear to pursue. There is a a good and a healthy fear. And throughout Scripture, we are called to fear the Lord. But also again and again throughout Scripture, we're called to fear not. So there are wrong kinds and right kinds. I mean, some of the wrong kinds would be fears that take our eyes off of God. For example, if we believe that we are all alone, that God won't really be there for us or help us, if we believe that we're not really sheltered in God, that if he exists, he doesn't care, then there will be all kinds of fears that paralyze us in our lives. We will fear for the future. We'll fear loneliness. We'll fear losing what matters the most to us and cling to it. Uh, we'll, feel, we'll fear losing our reputation. We'll fear sickness. We'll fear death. There's really no end to the fears that we could have if we were not the children of God. In fact, we should be afraid of everything if God doesn't exist. If there is no God, then we are specks of dust on a speck of dust hurtling through a dark universe with no good future in sight. We should really be afraid of everything if if that's the case. But fears like that distract us. And God doesn't want his children living with fears like that for a second because we believe that he he does exist. We believe that he is good. Listen to Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. He says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farther corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So he looks at Israel and he says, you're my children. You're my chosen ones. You're my rescued ones. I will be with you. I will not cast you off. And if that's the case, fear not. So all the fears that we would have if there is no God, all those fears that take our eyes off of God and his goodness, he wants us to to jettison all of them. Fear not because he's with us. There's also a fear that can make us run away from God. Sometimes that's just that we want to be our own Lord and we don't want a God who could command us. We fear that if we say that he's my God, if I kneel before him, if I believe his word, that that means he's going to be giving me these commands and that will mean that I have to lose my pride, I have to lose my freedom, I might have to lose some of my fun. It'll cost me my ability to be my own king. And, and now the Lord might do things that don't seem like they're the things that I would do. So in fear of what I might lose, I run from God. In fear that his commands aren't good, I can run away from him. 
Or maybe we run away just because we don't think he could ever accept someone like me. Every so often, someone will come into Grace Road and they'll say, man, I just feel like even walking into church, I'm going to get struck by lightning. And uh, some of them have been comforted by the fact that this place was a nightclub before we were meeting in here. They feel like, all right, I could survive. There's probably been worse things that have happened in here. And there are. Um, but like, so, so sometimes we have this idea that if I draw near to God, God will, will smite, God will judge. I've got to run away. God would never accept someone like me. I mean, my sin is too great. I have a history, and not even a history. I have this past Tuesday. Like, I come with, with this resume that doesn't look good. Um, there's no way that I could stand in the sight of a holy God, so we run away. But to run from God, even out of a right recognition of his holiness and his wrath, is to insult him. When we run away, we're kind of saying, God, you're omnipotent, you're all-powerful, you're omniscient, you know everything, but I can hide from you. I can get away. I can, I, can, I can successfully avoid God. When we think that way, it's actually not enough fear of the Lord. I mean, imagine if, if one day as a nation we were to decide that we were going to attack Canada, to take over Canada. That wouldn't be hard to do. But Canada, they could decide out of fear that they would try to fight back. They're afraid of us, so they fight back. But, but that would just be silly. It would show that they don't fear enough. The right kind of fear would be for them to say, let's just make peace now and avoid the war altogether. We're super polite anyway. That's what we, what we want to do. Um, let's just become the 51st state. We're basically already that anyway. So, so we'll just make peace now. We, we fear you enough to make peace. You get Tim Hortons, you get hockey, you get the good side of the falls. It's all yours. Um, we, we fear what it would mean to oppose you, so we make peace with you. And if in our fear of God we fight back against him or we run from him, it's really not enough fear. It's showing that we don't really know God's holiness. We don't really know his power. We don't really know his strength. It's saying, I can win this. I can outmaneuver God. I can outrun God. I can hide from God. To really fear God would be to fear even trying to get away from him. So there is a wrong kind of fear. But there is a right kind, a right kind that we cultivate. And we do know in our culture that some fears are helpful. Uh, we might not call them fears, but for example, we'll exercise because we fear the health consequences of getting out of shape. Or we pay our bills because we fear losing the house. Fears keep us from playing on train tracks and from playing on roofs. Uh, fear has so far kept me from maiming myself with a power tool because there's, there's a healthy fear of the power that's there. We, we know that there are some good fears. And the fear of the Lord that we're actually called to is a fear that sends us running to God. And Moses says it can actually help us obey. So how does that work? There's a way that fearing the Lord can drive out a lot of the fears that keep us from obeying. So, so for example, imagine that you reach a point in your marriage where you're just bored with your marriage. And you start to become tempted. You're tempted to pursue something else on, on the outside. But if you fear the Lord, if you fear his discipline and his holiness, then you can say, I do fear a boring life, but I fear God more. And the fear of the Lord outweighs your fear of boredom. Or maybe you say, man, I'm, I'm single, I really want to be married, but time is ticking. 
and I am so afraid of being alone. And I can't find a husband or wife, so, so maybe I'll just get hitched to somebody who doesn't share my love for the Lord, doesn't share my values. But if you fear the Lord more than you fear loneliness, you'll obey him rather than, than pursue your smaller fear. Or maybe you're just feeling the pressure at, at work or at school to, to hide your faith. And maybe you're afraid of losing status or job or even just popularity because you're a Christian. You're afraid of losing the approval of people. But Jesus said this. This is Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So the fear of the Lord drives out the fear of people. Because you know that, that God is a faithful father who disciplines and will, will discipline me if I compromise or stray. And there's more to fear there than there is in anything else I might lose from obeying. Now, it's important to say, this isn't the only motivation for Christian obedience. And it probably shouldn't even be the first one that drives us. But it is a valid New Testament motivation for obedience because he does command He is holy, and he's still the exact same God that he was at Mount Sinai. We don't get to remake him into something else. But more than just a motivation for obedience, our fear of the Lord is a motivation to take shelter in God, to run to him, to hide in him, to rest in him. Psalm 31, 19 and 20 say this, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. And worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. So there's a fear of God that we're called to that that stands in such trembling awe of him that we take shelter in him. But how do disobedient people, like the ones at the foot of Mount Sinai, take shelter in God? And it's interesting how often in Scripture God appears as a fire, where, where fire draws us in with its glow and with its warmth, but you can only get so close. It offers warmth. It offers attraction. We're all attracted to a fire to a certain point, but we can't get too close. So how do you shelter in God? It seems like you can only know him from a distance, but you want to get closer. And so that's why at the foot of Mount Sinai, they say there needs to be a buffer. We still want to know him, but we just can't get too close. So it's almost like this is a totally unsatisfying answer, that my only hope for the longings of my heart is to take shelter in God, but he's too terrifying and too holy for me to get near where I want to be. And even Moses wasn't a good enough mediator. He was able to go up and get near, but those people were still far away. They they were never able to come into the presence of God in the same way Moses was. They were kept at a distance. They, They were buffered, but our hearts are saying, I don't want the buffer. I want closeness with God. I want that relationship. But the storyline of the Bible points to a better mediator that came. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In Christ, God came near to us, and he died to pay the price for all of our sins so that everything that was in us as Christians that kept us from drawing near was eliminated. And if by faith we'll we'll trust in him and what he did for us, that means that even though we rightfully fear his holiness and judgment, that judgment was taken by Jesus, and now we can draw near. 
And scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. So before we had this fear of God that made us run from him, and we were afraid that if we gave up control, it might not be good for us. That God could give us these commands and they would restrict us, they'd withhold something good from us because he's a stingy, mean God. But when we look to the cross, that drives out any fear that God's commands could ruin our lives. Because on the cross, we see how good God is. We see how caring and kind and generous God is because on the cross, he gave us his son. And the God who gave us those commands is the same God who gave us his son. So surely if he would give us something that big and that good, then surely his commands must be good for us too. So we don't have to run out of fear of losing control because the best thing would be to yield control of my life to a God who's that good and that loving and that kind and that wise and who knows all things. So we don't have to run. We had that fear that kept us running from God because we knew we could never be accepted. I mean, not by a God who is holy and who really knows us. It was a valid fear. I mean, who can stand in his presence? But in Christ, he drew near. And on the cross, the fire of God's holiness burned off the sin of all who would trust in him, and now he can be a shelter. And while it's true that we serve the exact same God that showed up at Mount Sinai, a God who is that holy and that terrifying, it's also true that we are living in a different era where there's a new covenant and a new relationship with God than the one that they had at Mount Sinai. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, God hasn't changed, but because our sin's been dissolved, we can now run to him and be as close as our hearts desire to be. In the book of Hebrews, which is like the New Testament commentary on the book of Exodus, in chapter 12, uh, verse 18, it says this, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So looking back at Sinai, he says, that was so scary that even the mediator is saying, I need a mediator. This is scary for me, and I'm the one God chose to do this. Moses wasn't a good enough mediator. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So God hasn't changed, but for all who will turn to him by confessing our sin, turning from our sin, and trusting in him, we can get closer than they ever could at Sinai for a few reasons. One, it says the spirits of the righteous are made perfect. That when Jesus died on the cross, all of those who would ever trust in him were made perfect in God's sight. The, the guilt of our sin was lifted. So there's, there's nothing left in us that needs to be burned off that was already taken care of by Christ. Our spirits were made perfect, so now we can approach him. Even though we don't have our own perfection, we have the perfection of Jesus that gets credited to our account. It says that we have Christ as a better mediator, better than an 80-year-old Moses going up and down the mountain, one who went and stood in between us and God once and for all on the cross so that we could be brought near. He says we have better blood. 
The blood of Abel said, my, my brother is a murderer and he's guilty. But the blood of Christ says that the innocent one was murdered for the guilty. Things have now been set right by this blood in the new covenant. And now because Christ has made us perfect in his sight, Hebrews 4 gives us these applications. Verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Number one, let us hold fast our confession. Like this is such good news, but let's keep clinging to it. He says, if this is true, don't give up. There's no better message. There's no greater hope. The one that our hearts are after is the one that we can have because of Christ. No one else offers that to us. There is no other God that knows us fully and loves us fully because it's not possible. I mean, we are people who, to be known fully, would would not be loved. When people get to know us very well, they become less and less impressed with us. Imagine what God thinks when he can see us all the way to the bottom. But Jesus died for all of our sins, for all of those insufficiencies. And so now we can be both totally known by God and accepted by God. That's the greatest message there is. So he says, hold fast to that confession, cling to that. That is all we've got. Don't let go of that. You don't have to cling that much longer until you see him face to face. So hold fast to that confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. God drew so near to us in Jesus that he even experienced our temptation. So now not only is he a God that's far off, not only is is he the the God that causes the, the burning and the trembling and the earthquakes and the lightning and the thunder, he's also a God who drew so near that he was one of us and was tempted in every way that we are and yet is without sin. He says, so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So even though he's still that holy, we can approach boldly. We have a better mediator. Someone better than Moses came so that we could have that relationship and now we can draw near like sons and daughters. Now we can seek him in prayer, trusting his goodness. Now we can yield our lives to him. Yes, because we fear his discipline, but far more because we know he's good. Because we know his commands are for our good because the God who gave us those commands gave us his son. He says, draw near and draw near boldly. And if you don't yet believe, I want you to know that yes, in God, there is reason to fear. Because he's a holy God who punishes sin and who knows you all the way to the bottom. But there's a great offer. He came near and died. And scripture says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If we will kneel, if we'll give up our selfishness, if we'll turn from being the lords of our own lives, if we'll turn from our unbelief, we'll turn from our attempts to invent God in our image and make him who we want him to be, If we turn to him by faith and we come trembling but trusting, he'll receive us. And he'll never tell us to stay away like at Sinai. So if you'll admit your sin, admit that that holiness of God would justly be channeled against you in wrath, 
but then you'll believe that Jesus absorbed that and Jesus paid for that, that Jesus died and that Jesus rose again. If you turn from that sin and unbelief and you turn to trust him, he promises to receive you and he says, of all those who come to me, I won't lose one. You don't come to him by working your way there. You don't come to him by making yourself righteous. Who, who could be righteous enough for the God that can see you all the way to the bottom? You come by receiving by faith the gift of, of Christ that he gave you on that cross by trusting that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose again, and that, that pays the price completely for you. And again, if you'll trust and kneel, he'll receive you, and you'll have that relationship that your heart is after. It, it won't be totally complete. There will still be a longing for that day when you see him face to face, but that thing deep down that all of us want is that relationship with God, and it is ours through the better mediator, Jesus. So receive it today and be saved.